This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to today's podcast. My name is Dr. Greg Tino from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and I'm the podcast editor for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. The topic of today's podcast is gender inequality in academic medicine, and we're very fortunate to be joined by two colleagues, Drs. Ann Dixon and Naftali Kaminsky. Dr. Dixon is Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Pulmonary and Critical Care Division at the University of Vermont, and Dr. Kaminsky is Professor of Medicine and Pharmacology and Chief of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at Yale. Both Drs. Dixon and Kaminsky have served as presidents of the Association of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Division Chiefs. Dr. Dixon previously and Dr. Kaminsky currently, and they are both authors on a manuscript and workshop report entitled Addressing Gender Inequality in Our Disciplines, a report from the Association of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Division Chiefs. So welcome to you both folks, and thanks very much for joining the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to this uh, discussion on obviously a, a very important topic. So let's jump right in. So Anne, you listed some basic statistics to frame the problem of gender inequality in academic medicine in this country. So can you share some of those to get us started on our discussion? Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I first uh, provide some data relating to uh, uh, gender climate. Uh, gender climate is the experience of gender bias. Um, and this is reported by approximately 70% of uh, women and uh, 10 to 20% of men. Uh, perhaps this can be uh, best illustrated by a, a concrete example. Um, a concrete example is the way women are introduced for formal medical presentations. Uh, a recent study showed that women were introduced by their professional titles for medical grand rounds in only 49% of cases compared with uh, about 70% of the time uh, men were introduced by their formal titles. Uh, so men were being introduced by professional titles, whereas women are commonly introduced and referred to um, by their first name. And, and these seemingly little things alter how women are, are perceived. Um, I think Naftali can provide some uh, statistics related to pay. Yeah, so basically, um, despite everything we sought and hoped to achieve, um, pay in our, there's a 20% pay gap between men and women in the United States in general. And if you look at uh, um, the medical profession, um, most studies have shown differences between you know 15% to something like 40%. So these are big differences. People have claimed that these things represent a bias because of academic advancements or slow for women or, or other things. But actually, if you look at the physician scientists, uh, program directors, if you look at uh, if you control for important covariate, um, Anupan Jena, who was uh, uh, one of the speakers in our panels, analyzed uh, equality and compensation by gender, controlling for almost everything. Uh, years since uh, training, rank of uh, medical school attended, number of scientific publications, whatever you could think of. And there was still a very systematic bias towards men. So women were paid less than men after controlling for these uh, variables. Um, the specialties um, with the largest adjusted salary differences, of course, are the ones that are paid the most. Uh, but we found that there are gaps in nearly every field. So there's also issues with leadership, and I can comment on that. 
Yeah, sure. Um, leadership, um, so statistics related to leadership was uh, another area where actually found the data was quite startling. So we all know now that about half of medical students today are women, um, yet only uh, about 35% of women uh, are associate professors or 35% associate professors are women, um, and only about 25% are full professors are women. Uh, when you break it down by uh, uh, division chiefs, only about 24% of uh, division chiefs are women, and actually it's only about 15% of adult uh, pulmonary and critical care medicine uh, directors are chief, uh, women as chiefs, 24% um, of vice chairs, 15% of department chairs, 16% of medical school deans are women. So uh, a very low proportion compared to the number of women in medicine. Um, and this is not just uh, professionally within uh, one's own institution. Um, this also happens in other co uh, contexts. So uh, recent data actually found that women constituted only 13% of authors of guidelines in, in, in critical care. Um, and in terms of publications, women are much less often first uh, or last author. Um, and this mirrors the uh, proportion of uh, women reviewers and editorial board members. Um, so women are very underrepresented in leadership positions. Now, Tali, so, did you want to make any more comments? Well, I, I do want to mention our own society because uh, uh, we're all proud of the ADS and we are really impressed by how ADS has uh, took a leadership role in diversity and um, uh, w women and gender equality. But it is important that we will be aware that our numbers are not as good as they could be. If you look at the last 30 years, um, women served as the ATS presidents only 17% of the time. I, you know, I thought it was a bigger number because these were amazing leaders and had a huge impact. But it's a, you know, only 17%. And actually, in the last 10 years, it's improved to around a third of the presidents. In our journals, uh, we're proud to say that we have now uh, a chief editor, uh, a woman chief editor in the Blue Journal. She is the first in the last 30 years. Um, and the rates of uh, deputy editors, associate editors, are, uh, deputy editors are really low. Associate editors, you can start seeing the change with 40% of associate editors being women. So clearly the community has responded. One of the things that shocked me because I was the, uh, on the awards committee of the ATS was when I looked at the numbers, me and Andrea like the chair. So only three women were selected to give the prestigious Amberson Luxor in the last 60 years. Only nine women got the Trudeau Medal in 92 years. Um, and really, this situation was terrible until the last few years. Uh, however, there has been an increase, and in general, uh, in the last uh, 10 years, we have been an increase, and we have uh, had uh, both Trudeau medalists and Amberson uh, award speakers uh, who were women. We feel that this is an important issue. We'll discuss it also in sponsorship and mentorship, how people should actually need to think about it. Um, and uh, and promote it, but these numbers are changing, but they should change faster. Okay, so um, I think we've addressed this, but just briefly, Anne, what was the major impetus then for doing this workshop? 
Sure. Well, many of us at the division chief uh, level are painfully aware um, of the lack of women in leadership positions. Um, and I don't want to say this problem is limited to our profession, um, but we felt strongly that we are in a position not only to study this and raise awareness, but also to come up with concrete proposals um, and uh, we want to address this issue in a practical, problem-solving way. So, Natalia, as a follow-up to that, tell us about the methods that you used um, to develop the workshop and the subsequent report. So, basically, you know, as, as the actually Anne, I think, is, is the first president of the Association of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine uh, Division Chiefs, and I'm I think the first elected, elected, so the second, we, we actually wanted to start generating resources that will be valuable for the community. And basically, we proposed a workshop together with, the, uh, we were uh, two chairs, uh, together also with Carrie Thompson, who did a lot of good work and uh, is actually the, the first author on this paper. And uh, basically, we organized a workshop in which we had uh, uh, um, uh, leaders uh, at training programs, at department, and, and, uh, and uh, even uh, deans, um, uh, current and past APS executive committee members. So basically, we had 12 women and four men from a diverse range of uh, ethnicities, uh, public, private institutions, gender orientations, and uh, faculty uh, rank, uh, rank. And in this workshop, we actually reviewed the literature on gender equity and equality and examine practices and beliefs. One of the cool things we did is actually um, um, in-depth qualitative phone interviews with division and department uh, uh, leaders. This was done by Christine Reichert um, uh, and Eileen uh, Larson. Uh, this provided us with um, key quotes that we used to lead the discussion. We also had two outside speakers, uh, Carl Bates, Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs with expertise uh, at the, of, uh, uh, in gender uh, equality, and, uh, and uh, Anupam Jena, who's an epidemiologist who published uh, on gender equality. So the idea was that having the workshop, the interviews, the review of the literature, and then basically there were small group discussions in which we uh, build our recommendation because we really did not want the workshop to be about describing the situation but a little bit about prescribing the solutions. So just, Natalia, just as a follow to that, can you just tell us what the Association of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Division Chiefs actually is? That's a good question, uh, and I'm glad you asked that. Uh, so the Association of uh, Division Chiefs was created uh, uh, a few years ago basically as a group of division chiefs that felt that they needed to uh, share information there used to be a, a meeting at the ATS um, to share information, exchange ideas, and uh, um, improve pulmonary medicine. Um, what has happened in the last probably four years is that there was a notion that we needed to formalize this group and uh, actually incorporate it. And this was led by uh, Ann Dixon and Rob Glenny and a few others uh, uh, in the group. And um, the Association of Division Chiefs basically aims to deal with pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine from the perspective of the division chief. And the reason we say the perspective is because we consider the division chief as the, the 
person who is a leader, but is still in the trenches. You still, you're not like a department chair, you're not remote, you're not a dean. You actually know the day-to-day problems uh, of academic medicine or, or other types. You know, the all aspects of the mission of uh, an academic division, education, um, uh, research, clinical care. And for many of us, the fourth dimension, which is wellness. So all of these are really important. And then, Division chiefs are in a particular place. However, nothing in our career prepares us for for what we would do as division chief. Most of us get it because we were an outstanding clinician, a nationally uh, renowned opinion leader, or a great researcher. These things don't train you to become a chief. So we thought that we needed an organization that will both position, post our views about issues, but also provide resources and for instance, uh, we published uh, uh, a paper in um, in the annals, and we're very grateful for it. And actually, in uh, February, uh, I think it was February this year, which was basically is a leadership primer for current and aspiring pulmonary critical sleep medicine academic division chiefs. So, if any one of the people who are listening want to be a chief, read this leadership primer. And we are planning to basically continue publishing both positions on issues we think are important to handle, like gender equality and hopefully clinical work standards in the future, but also the toolbox for the chief, leadership, negotiation, financial uh, tools. We meet every year at the ATS. We have a great group of people, and we're really excited about the direction the organization has taken. So, Anne, is gender inequality in medicine an American problem, or is it true in other countries who have well-developed academic programs? Oh, yeah. I, I, I don't think this is a, a uniquely American problem uh, by any manner of means, but I, I think it's a very challenging problem across the globe and all, across all professions. Uh, we chose to specifically focus on the U.S. Um, because uh, we think medical institutions in general, and actually academic medical institutions in particular, very widely across the globe, And our goal with this was to develop some practical and specific recommendations that we hope can readily be implemented. Um, And we felt this could be better achieved by focusing um, in our own backyard. Uh, Having said that, my very sincere hope is that these uh, recommendations might be more generalizable and generalizable to women working in this field around the world. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And Natalia, is there data about gender inequality in other practice settings, like a private practice slash non-academic settings or in pharma? So the data in other practice settings are not as um, uh, as accurate, adjusted for our um, other variables as, as in academic uh, medical centers. But every single uh, questionnaire that was done showed the pay gap between men and women, um, which increases as the profession is more highly compensated. So that's definitely true for our uh, private and non-academic settings. Um, We have little data about pharma uh, in general. We have no reason to think it's much better. That makes sense. So, Anne, I noticed that in this report you didn't address sexual harassment specifically. Was there a reason uh, for that? Uh, yeah, um, one of the, the reason is we we actually felt that this was 
such a big issue um, that if we tried to incorporate it uh, within the uh, gender equality workshop, it would just be um, too much. Um, there was also, you know, quite frankly, some, some anxiety about uh, addressing such a controversial issue as one of the first, first things we were going to take on. But uh, we decided uh, this is a major issue, obviously, um, and uh, we are going to take this on. And uh, so we're planning um, at least a podcast um, on uh, sexual harassment um, and um, uh, thinking about uh, whether we could... Um, uh, work with uh, the ATS task force. So um, I think the ATS is doing things about this, um, and I think we know as division directors we need to move forward with this. So um, watch this space. So again, if you're listening to this, our podcast uh, is is the, the podcast of the APCCSB. There will be announcement uh, on a podcast on Me Too and pulmonary medicine probably in the next two months. We definitely right. will have it before the ATS meeting. Right. So, Anne and Naftali, the, the central part of the workshop, I guess, was the identification of five themes that are associated with gender disparity in academic medicine. And uh, and I'd like to spend some time commenting, you commenting on each of these. So, Anne, why don't we start with you uh, sure. and take it from there. Yeah, well, um, let me take you through um, the, the, the first theme, which was uh, gender climate. And, and as I mentioned, gender climate refers to uh, perceived or implicit gender bias in the workplace. Um, and uh, let, let me give you an example of this. Um, there are studies showing that the same CV is perceived more positively with a male than a female name. Um, and uh, so it affects people when, when they're applying for jobs. Um, and we know it affects leaders. Similar behavior by male and female leaders could be perceived quite differently. Um, so to address this, we came up with some specific recommendations. And we aimed our recommendations um, at uh, three uh, separate levels. Uh, we aimed our recommendations towards the professional societies. Uh, we aimed our recommendations towards uh, individuals who are in leadership at institutions, um, and we also tried to provide some concrete uh, recommendations or pathway, if you like, for individuals. Um, and so we think the things that we can do um, to address gender climate is, uh, number one, um, obtain information. Um, find out uh, what the uh, relative proportion of uh, women in, in leadership positions uh, is in, in your own institution. Um, societies, institutions need to um, have policies that address uh, gender equality. Um, we need to think of ways we can improve representation of women in leadership and uh, you know, welcome uh, women who are interested in leadership to, to, to reach out. Um, uh, we need to provide and uh, seek out uh, training opportunities, and this could be done by uh, the societies, can be done by institutions, um, and I would encourage um, uh, junior women to seek out these opportunities. They can be very valuable. Um, I think it's important to create an environment of uh, advocacy and uh, support, um, and I think uh, there are many things that we can do, uh, that we can all do. This, this, this is a team effort in terms of gender climate. I actually want to highlight uh, as a, the men in the discussion is the disproportionate burden of family responsibility um, on women faculty. Every questioner has shown that uh, female physicians reported 
way more responsibility for caregiving and family responsibilities. Um, and these things impact job satisfaction, time available for job-related activities outside of business hours, um, and even, men, you know, burnout. And um, recently, there was a survey by the NIH, for instance, on the side of actually people who do research um, that among people, faculty with K awardees, men had only 45% uh, 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 partner who's working full-time. On the other one, 86% of women had a partner that worked full-time. And of course, this makes uh, a big difference in availability. Women, based on the numbers, spend at least eight, five, eight hours more per week on family and household responsibility, and were nearly four times more likely to take time off from work for childcare disruption compared to male respondents. What is even worse is that not all hospitals or practices offer medical leave uh, for family need, needs, and many fields of medicine basically offer little or no uh, flexibility, again, um, putting a bigger burden on women. Um, depending on the study, between 30% uh, to actually 75% of physician mothers stated that they were discriminated against as a result of pregnancy, maternity leave, or breastfeeding. Um, so all of these issues need um, to be addressed. And one one of the interesting things, actually, is starting to think about solutions. So, for instance, um, when people were surveyed, sur surveyed actually gender equality discussions at faculty retreats actually have helped. So, for instance, um, both have helped on both sides, both on the side of the feeling of women that their difficulties were more appreciated, but also on the other side, which is men were willing to take on more responsibilities. So, we formed several recommendations. Um, uh, again, and the same when we took the same approach, which is what needs what the individual needs to do, what needs the organizational leader to do, what the needs the professional society. And one of the interventions we definitely um, saw as a practical one is advocate for child care services. Um, uh, and again, uh, child care services that are accessible, affordable, and close to the working place is important, and all layers can address it. Uh, provide access, of course, to breast, breast fees, Feeding, and if there's an institution that still doesn't have the, the solutions, uh, they need to do it. And ensure um, organizational sleep policies and in our institution, we're glad to say that these have been equalized and standardized. And there's also small things that the local leader can do. So for instance, um, in my section, we don't have uh, meetings um, non-necessary meetings, uh, which are business, before um, 9, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. So all meetings have to end by 5 p.m. And one of the reasons that we felt this was important is actually this image of people leaving at 5 because they need to go to, you know, from faculty meeting because they need to go to pick up their kids. Sure. So these things are really important. Uh, Anne, do you want to add anything else? or? No, I, I think those, those those highlighted the main points, and I, and I would actually say that these um, 
these interventions are effective policies, you know, to support all families and uh, work-life balance. So I think they, that they will benefit, you know, men as well as women. Absolutely. Exactly. How about the third theme, Anne, about the, the lack sure. of in your academic rank or leadership position? Yeah, we, we, we mentioned some of the data about the very low um, uh, prevalence of women at, um, you know, chief uh, department chair and uh, dean level. Um, and this obviously is a result of so many issues, um, many of which we've already touched on, um, including, you know, lack of networking opportunities and sponsorship. Um, and, and, and so we thought hard about what are some concrete steps that we can take to address this. Um, and I think one of the things that we all need at, at every level is um, training. Uh, certainly as leaders, we, we, we need training on what are our responsibilities um, to, as both sponsors and mentors. Um, and individuals need training um, about how do they go up the academic ladder um, and uh, what do they need to do to get promoted. Individuals need to be very well informed about this. Um, advocacy is is very important, um, and I think societies and institutions uh, need to uh, advocate for the promotion of women um, and uh, make sure that women are getting promoted at the appropriate rate. Um, and I think at the individual level, women need to, as I say, clearly understand what the criteria are for, for their own promotion and career advancement. I think one of the huge barriers is uh, networking, um, and we discussed a lot about how informal networks are, are so important for, for career advancement and for people being considered for uh, committee assignments, which can, can, can lead to our uh, career promotion, and, and, and so we need to uh, focus on how we can improve networking opportunities for women, uh, both at the, the national level and, and within our own institutions. Um, and, and I would encourage, you know, junior individuals, uh, actually individuals at all levels, uh, uh, seek out opportunities to network. And um, serving on a committee may not seem uh, particularly important um, in its own right, but, but serving on, you know, committees can be important networking steps. And, and I think the other thing we discussed was the fact we need to try and uh, hardwire these steps into our societies and into our institutions. We, we need to develop procedures to ensure that um, women are included in, in guidelines, are included on committees, um, are included on um, editorial boards. Um, these are the things that can really uh, enhance the advancement of women. I want to give just a very relative a uh, simple example, which I've seen from uh, Jackie Washima from Michigan. So basically, if you invite him to participate in a panel, he will actually ask who are the other participants in the panel. And if there's no woman, he basically will volunteer to give his place on the panel to a woman. And it's not charity. He will say, I have a list of women that are as established or more established than I am. And initially, it looked a little weird because it's such so formal, I actually bored his approach. I think it's a really effective way of doing things. Um, and it is, we'll discuss mentorship versus sponsorship. This is the way you sponsor people. And also you make a public stand. As an organizer of conferences, I every now and then I noticed that I didn't pay attention and my panels were all men. So actually having this help from others saying, pay attention you know, is, is critically important. Certainly agree with that. How about the leaky pipeline, folks, the lack of retention of women? 
We we don't think there is a real leaky pipeline. Uh, I think there we think there is a blocked pipeline, which is this is really outstanding uh, women faculty and women positions at the lower ranks, but they don't get there. And I don't think that it's well. At least the data doesn't suggest that they're dropping out. The data suggests they just cannot get over the tipping point, and and it's not because of them, but because of these slowdowns. So um, uh, there's definitely a need to retain uh, senior women and make sure that career opportunities. But the truth is that the leaky, there's again, it's removing the blocks in the pipeline that are critically important and not necessarily um, addressing the leaks. Well, you, in the in the workshop, you did mention and did talk about the fact that yeah, there is a five percent. Loss of women faculty to to you know other other jobs. So and where what jobs are women faculty going to when they leave an academic setting in general? Do you have a sense for? Um, you know you know I wish I could I could give you an answer to that question, but but I will tell you that the hardest group to survey is a, is a group that have left. Um, it's much easier to uh, survey uh, the population that that is still there. Um, so uh, unfortunately we, we 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 don't have that data, Greg. I wish we did. Yeah, that's that's. It would be interesting, and, wouldn't it? And and actually, one thing that's really dangerous is these old perceptions. So there's old perceptions from 30 or 40 years ago that women had different career goals. And what happens? Because we all have implicit biases. When you evaluate people, sometimes you think based on these, um, I would we say, cultural imprints. So we feel that it's more the slowing down of women being promoted, more the slowing down of people selected for senior leadership positions than necessarily the the, the number of uh, women leaving academic medicine. And then obviously the, the final theme, and one that you've both touched on before, was the lack of gender equality and compensation. So, Anne, just uh, are, there anything, are there any specific things that we haven't covered, and, and can you summarize what what uh, what the recommendations were. Yeah, the- sure. Well, wh- one of the things that, that we haven't sort of touched upon yet is um, we actually think, you know, women often actually start out with, with, with lower salaries than men. And, and, and I think there are, there are barriers for women negotiating salary. Women are often perceived more negatively uh, when, when, when they negotiate. So, so these can start very, very early. Um, and, and, and so we thought about um, ways that we, we could address this and, and, again, try to come up with some specific recommendations. Um, and one is to have um, training. And, and, you know, women should be aware about the, the, this issue. Um, and we actually think that having um, – so standardized compensation schemes um, are very important um, so that everybody at the same level um, is uh, paid uh, according to a certain metric. Um, and I think it's important that, that individuals understand these, these metrics um, and um, um, advocate for themselves. Uh, transparency and compensation uh, can be very helpful or understanding uh, why people are compensated um, for what they do. Um, so I think knowledge is power here. Um, and uh, people need to um, advocate for themselves, and we also recommend um, uh, sort of standard, standardized compensation schemes that, that that really prevent gender inequities. And I just wanted to follow up that question because you know there's been a lot of discussion 
you know, certainly at Penn and other institutions about that very issue about uniform compensation policies, which which makes a lot of sense, especially across ranks. But as division chiefs um, who are managing, you know, complex divisions with, you know, lots of different uh, stakeholders, are there unintended consequences um, compensation, uniform compensation policies across the division, cutting across, you know, gender issues? So one is there is um, – if you – if you really put everybody in exactly the same spin um, in terms of uh, pay levels, it would be, you know, could could have a detrimental effect. You know, some if you look at pulmonary, critical care, and sleep, the diversity of the things we do in the competition for some of the things we do does create some natural pay differences, but the way I we believe is is basically standardizing the per the thing you do. So, for instance, if you're a mainly all the assistant professors who are going to be physician scientists and do eighty percent research are going to get paid exactly the same. All the people, let's say, that do critical care and many na- nights are going to do exactly the same. So I think what you need to pay attention is that you give equal pay for equal work. Um, one of the things that we've learned, and Greg, I'm sure you've seen it and Anne, you've seen it, it's not only men and women. If you, for entry-level jobs, if you allow negotiation to take place, you're giving an unfair advantage, not necessarily to your strongest clinicians or scientists, but to people who are good negotiators. And, yep. Um, yeah, not necessarily the most important thing we need. So we're I'm a big uh, fan of very standard and transparent um, entry-level pays and incentive systems. Um, but you want to make sure that you're not disincentivizing people from working harder because um, your um, standard pay is too equal or too low. Right, and I would just encourage any division chief out there or anyone in a position of leadership that's that's listening to this is that look at your data um, and see what the women are being paid and see what the men are being paid. and um, it, 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 it can be very revealing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, one, one more plug-in for our activities, so the Association of Division Chiefs, that we, we're basically, this is the one thing we're going to take on now, and very seriously, Kerry Thompson and others have volunteered to work, and actually, we would like to develop uh, work and pay standards for pulmonary critical care and sleep physicians. So we'll start with serving, with some research, and hopefully uh, we'll have data. This is extremely complex because the information is very, very complicated. Um, um, this is more general, men, women, all, but I think just having the numbers will drive the quality. So one of the one of the comments that I was very intrigued by in the in the workshop report was that women lack sponsorship more than mentorship. Can you elaborate on uh, on what you meant? So the difference is mentorship is basically you guide people in their career in the process. You teach them what they need. You help them. Um, sponsorship is different because you includes also the sort of the public advocacy or the advocacy in the society. So, for instance, if you're mentored by a mentor who is an outstanding scientist, you can get 
brilliant mentorship. However, if this person is an introvert that doesn't want to go to uh, national meetings and is is not on committees, they're probably not going to sponsor you. So mo- all of us need both mentors and sponsors, and they don't necessarily have to be um, the same people. Uh, when they looked at it in the business world, um, influential male mentors are sponsoring their male mentees, but they always, uh, uh, and they, which leads for more opportunities, so they suggest them to work, but they tend to not sponsor women the same way. And really multiple, like I think we reviewed 42 studies that showed the same pattern in academic medicine, which is that male uh, mentors tended to sponsor their male trainees more than the female trainees. And part of it could be old perceptions about career goals, um, other things that come into play. Um, So, and definitely the lack of women in senior leadership roles um, also did, uh, helps us. So basically, you know, it's it's something to recognize both as the individual trainee. Is your mentor also somebody who could sponsor you? Sometimes you actually need to make them aware of your career plan. If you are um, a leader or chief a mentor, are you actually sponsoring equally? You maintain. Are there any implicit biases that you 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 are suffering from? And of course, at the organization, is the best, most important thing is actually looking at the numbers, um, uh, and um, and uh, looking. So sponsorship is critically important for allowing people to obtain leadership positions. And I would just add that you know that there's a lack of women in senior leadership positions. To, to serve as sponsors, um, so uh, women need you know men who are who are sponsors, um, and uh, I, so I would uh, urge all the men out there to to think about this as uh, something that they can do. So, so Anne, you made a lot of recommendations to address each of the of the fine main main themes, um, and I was hoping that you both could sort of hone down on what the most critical ones are. So, what are the what are the major take home points um, uh, from the workshop for our audience? Okay, that's challenging. Okay, um, um, I think addressing gender climate. I mean, that that that's about awareness um, and uh, awareness training, getting the data, um, family responsibilities. Um, that's demanding. Um, uh, think about promoting family friendly policies, and and that's good for everybody. Um, the, the the leadership issue. Um, I, I think we need to think about uh, the things uh, Natalie was, was was talking about. We need to think about uh, sponsorship and mentorship, um, and uh, we need to make sure that we've got um, adequate representation of uh, women um, on panels, on boards, um, etc. Um, it's not acceptable uh, not to have um, appropriate representation, not in this day and age. Uh, the leaky pipeline um, requires uh, addressing all the issues we've talked about um, and uh, addressing compensation. I mean, I think that requires uh, awareness um, and, and data. Um, so those would be my um, sort of high points for our five themes. Nafal, anything to add to that? Um, I, I just want to add one thing, which I think is actually the most novel aspect of our paper, is that we actually – did not leave out any stakeholder of the discussion. So we really believe that um, 
gender inequality is is pervasive, and you don't fix something that is basically I don't know, and so thousands of years old, with one group advocating. So one is this is not a women's issue; it's a society and community issue. The second is that really all layers, the organizational leaders, the professional societies, the individuals have a role in this. And I would just suggest to people, you know, print out our paper, read the tables, and use them as your um, action items. So, Natalia, do you have any advice on how women faculty can most effectively advocate for themselves? And obviously, Ann, I'd like your perspective as well. Um, so, from the point of view of, of a chief, I can say that the easiest thing for me as a chief is to work with faculty that know what they want that are not um, waiting to be discovered somewhere. Um, so women, just like men, need to do it. So when you meet with your chief, make sure that you, you know, your career uh, plan is laid out. Because again, the, the person may be the most progressive person. It could be a man or a woman, doesn't matter. But implicit biases have an impact. So what I recommend to faculty members in general is actually put things in writing. What do you want to do? What is your plan? What is your expectation? There are other things is don't hesitate to ask your mentor to sponsor you. That works again for everybody. Women just tend to do it less than men, but it's important. The third thing is serve as your, your peer support system. So it's really important that everybody advocates for everybody, but Many times in a division, our section is lucky, we have more than 50% women, but in a place that is three or four women faculty out of 10 or 20, um, really important that women actually advocate for each other because it's really hard for one person in a room, one woman in a, in a room full of men to say, okay, this is actually unacceptable or this is unfair. Um, women in leadership position, I think advocating for numbers transparency, and sponsoring other women is definitely critical, you know, not to be shy about it. Again, there is this notion in our society that you should not advocate for your kind of people, right? So, and that's why actually I think I'm speaking about this. Is, uh, but, but I think it's really important to, to, to advocate and be a sponsor for other women. Anne, thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I would also say that women often don't even see themselves in, in, in leadership roles, and, and so this, this can be a bit of a problem in them advocating for themselves. So, you know, I think what Natalia is, 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 is saying to, you know, all the junior women out there is, you know, there's no reason that, that, that you should not be a leader in, in, in your profession um, and advocate for yourself. You know, we, we, we can do this. We can do this together. So so I'll, I'll give you another example just for, for the fun of it. So I have this habit that I, I try to make interviews interesting for myself. So for some fellowship interviews, one of my structured questions is, do you see yourself in my job, right? Do you want to be a chief? So, of course, the fellows, they're just trying to get into fellowship, right? That is sort of this. But what I see is it's very common that you will see you know, the the men have no hesitation just saying yes, right? And this is completely qualitative, right? It's based, but what, what, what you see is actually many women will say, well, I don't know yet, I'm not sure. And then you ask them, I, I just say, 
do you think you'd be achieved? And then most of them will say, you know, you almost see this thing. Yes, definitely. But it's an interesting process. So I think putting in the thought, actually, not all trainees, but definitely uh, women and 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 is that you know, if you finish medical school, uh, internal medicine, and a good fellowship, you 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 can be a leader. I think that's very well said, um, and very simply said. So um, as we come to the end of our time, any any last thoughts or comments? Uh, things that we haven't covered that um, that are important for our audience to hear, folks. I mean, I would just like to reiterate that that I think this is this is a major issue. I mean, the, the data on on women in leadership. This is you know 2018, nearly 2019. Um, it's embarrassing. Um, but the good news is um, there are concrete steps we can take, um, and you know we've laid out a roadmap in this paper. Um, and, and I would just also sort of like to throw down the gauntlet a little bit and saying if, if we don't do anything, we're, we're actually supporting um, the status quo here. Um, so um, I think this is a problem we can address. Exactly, I completely agree, and I think we all feel the same way. This is doable. I want to uh, highlight one thing. If you look at our paper, there's one thing that's really missing, which is really concrete milestones. And I would like to encourage people, and if there are people who, among the listeners who are interested in this, um, we would love to write a second paper that says, how do we know that we impact the change? And basically set goals, and maybe ATS leadership would be willing to do it. It's basically setting goals for our societies, our divisions, and saying, how do we know that we have to change? Um, percentages, numbers, and effects. And the last thing, I do want to again make the plug for our podcast. Um, it's called From the Trenches, reflecting the unique view of the division chiefs. Um, um, you can find us on any of the podcast providers um, iTunes or other things, and there's going to be in the next two or three months a podcast about Me Too and medicine. So um, stay tuned. Uh, and and I would also like to say a big thank you to the Annals um, for uh, you know publishing um, this this work and also uh, for publicizing it with the, with this podcast. So thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, listen, I'd like to thank Dr. Dixon and Kaminsky for participating and, and generating great discussions in the podcast and to our audience. I hope that you've enjoyed this podcast and found today's discussion on gender inequality in academic medicine is really as interesting and as provocative as I have. And until next time, this is Dr. Greg Tino, podcast editor for the Annals of the ATS, and thanks for joining in.